in, uh, in my experience, there are three types of athletes in the world. Uh, there are sports people, there are runners, and there are gym people. Now, sports people are the types of people that need a ball or a puck or, or some type of equipment and a goal in front of them and teammates around them. All right? Runners are the types of people that love to run just for the sake of running. Now, they might run races and run on a, a cross-country team, but they just love running. And they'll run at any time of the day. They'll run rain or shine, sleet or hail. They just love to run. And then there are gym people. And, and the gym people are those that love to find themselves in a gym and pump an iron or join in a class, but pushing their body to the absolute limit. And they love the pain, the burn that that kind of workout brings. Now, Typically, uh, traditionally, I've been a sports person. I love sports. And to me, sport exercise is only enjoyable if there's a soccer ball in front of me and a goal out in front of me and, and a team around me. I've always been a sports person. But uh, in the past couple of months, I've actually become a bit of a runner as well. You see, my son Elijah uh, decided to join the cross-country team. He wanted to run, and I found that that was a great way to spend some time with him. So I began to run with Elijah. I'd become kind of a, a runner. And then my friend Bob, uh, he's a big gym guy, and he's been begging me for about four years to come to the gym with him. And I've, I've, I've seemed to be able to push him off until just recently, and I gave in, and I, and I joined the gym with him, and, uh, and I've actually really been enjoying it. So uh, I'm not sure exactly where I fit, but the fact that I identify with all three groups scares the life out of me because I discovered something at the gym. There's actually a fourth class of athlete, and these are a class of athlete that combines all three of the other types into a insane sort of an athlete. And there's one place in particular where these types of athletes thrive. Uh, let me give you a snapshot of what I'm talking about. Check this out. That's insane. <laughs> if I hang out with these people long enough, I might just get duped into doing something like that. And can you believe they actually pay money? To run that race? That's insane. Now, can you imagine? Now, as you notice, I jumped into running and weightlifting and the whole gym thing because of an invitation of, of somebody I care about. Can you imagine if you got an invitation from a buddy, a friend, to run a race, and you thought to yourself, like me, well, I've been running lately. I've been working out. I'm in pretty good shape. I'm kind of an athlete. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll run a race with you. And you show up to race day, and you're surrounded by other competitors, and everybody's getting ready to go. The gun goes off, and you take off. And about 100 yards into the race, you recognize something far up ahead. The, the, the runners in front now begin to scale a wall. And it dawns on you, oh, my goodness, this is one of those obstacle course races. It's going to kill me. I, I didn't sign up for this. I quit. And that's exactly the thought that the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were thinking as they began to follow Jesus. They found that obstacles started to pop up, that living the Christian life in their particular context was way more difficult than they thought. The persecution, the opposition against them was really difficult, and they began to think, wait a minute, this is not what we signed up for. We weren't in for, is this really what following Jesus means? They began to wonder if they should turn back to their old way of life. It's not that they weren't used to religion. Uh, they were accustomed to religion, and in fact, very rigorous religion. But this whole Christianity thing was, was a whole different ballgame. And so the author of Hebrews writes these disheartened believers to encourage them not to quit the race, not to turn back, not to cash in, not to take a shortcut, but to press on to the finish line. 
And the pattern that the author of Hebrews continues to employ is one where he paints a picture of the old way of life, and then he paints a new picture of Jesus, about how Jesus is greater than, is better than the old way of life, how Jesus completes their old way of thinking and living. Today we're in the final week of our series, Picture Perfect, where we're looking at portraits of Jesus throughout the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look today at Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to encourage you to open that up to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, hopefully you've grabbed a weekly welcome on your way in. You're going to find a, a notes page in there. It's ideally for taking, well, notes or jotting down questions. Or if you're ADD like me, you can draw pictures. And today would actually be a really good day to draw pictures because the author of Hebrews paints a really cool picture using a race metaphor. So here's what we read when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. Follow along. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, I love art. I love going down to the Art Institute of Chicago and looking at the paintings, and one of the things I love most about going down there is bringing one of my kids with me and calling attention to all the details in some of my favorite paintings to point out the meaning behind those details. And so what I'm going to do with you right now is I want to I want to peer deep into these two verses, verses 1 and 2, and, and really examine the painting, the picture that Hebrews is giving us. And we're going to start by looking at the course, all right? When we look at the course, there's a couple of details I want to point out. The first thing we notice is that the author of Hebrews calls, us, calls our attention to a cloud of witnesses. This is no ordinary cloud of witnesses. This is no ordinary stand of spectators, all right? If we understand what the author of Hebrews is doing, we need to go back to chapter 11 to figure out who these clouds of witnesses are, who these people are that are sitting in the stands cheering us on. We go back to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about faith, and it examines the lives of Old Testament saints who lived a faithful life and endured some really difficult things till the very end. For instance, if we look at verses 17 through 19, we learn about the faith of Abraham. He's the guy that had no children, but God promised him descendants. And he has a child. Finally, at the age of 100, he has Isaac. And then God asks him to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. And Abraham's faith doesn't waver. He takes his son right up to the top of Mount Moriah, and he binds him up, and he places him on an altar. And just as he's about to sacrifice his one and only son, God intervenes and provides a a substitute for Isaac. The Bible tells us that Abraham passed the test. He endured that that trial. His faith helped him endure that. Verses 24 through 27 explore the faith of Moses. Moses was the baby that was born in a Hebrew family and whose mother hid him in a basket and pushed him down the Nile. And because of that, he was taken in and adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace of Egypt. But scripture tells us that when he became of age and he realized who he was, that he was a child of God, that he was a Hebrew, he He resisted the comforts of Egypt. He rejected everything he grew up with. And he chose instead to be mistreated with the children of Israel. His faith endured. Still others, it says in verses 32 through 40, faced torture, imprisonment, swords, stoning, being sawn in two. Others faced destitution and homelessness and poverty. And in every instance, by faith, they refused to turn their back on God or turn back away from the course that was laid out in front of them. Instead, their faith produced in them an endurance that pushed them to the finish line. 
These are the clouds of witnesses that we have surrounding us as we live out the Christian life. This is the cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews calls to mind as he paints this picture. And by implication, we understand something unique about the course. This course that's laid out in front of us as Christ followers is no easy stroll in the park. It's no jog around a nice, smooth, cinder track. The experiences of each one of these saints in chapter 11 was, was a grueling experience that required great faith and great perseverance. The race God calls us to as Christ followers is not easy. And the second vivid image that we get is that of sin. The author of Hebrews says it's going to be a whole lot harder to run this race if you've got sin entangling you and tripping you up and hindering your run. So what you got to do is you got to throw off everything that hinders you, all the sin that entangles you. Throw it off. Now, if you're getting the idea here of like a ball and chain wrapped around a runner's ankle or perhaps their shoelaces tied together, you're overthinking it, okay? Yes, sin can be very much like that, but I'm not sure that's exactly what the, Hebrew, or the author of Hebrews has in mind. In fact, if we go back and we explore or we learn about the ancient Greek races, what we find is they felt that clothing of just all kinds was a hindrance. And so before the Greek games, they would throw off their clothing in order to avoid being hindered by anything at all, and then they would run the race. And so the author of Hebrews says, listen, you need to throw off anything that hinders, even the good things that you turn to for comfort, for help, for aid. You need to throw off anything that might get in the way or hinder you in the race ahead. You guys saw in the video earlier, most of those runners ran with very little on. I, I talked to my friend Bob who runs these kind of races all the time. And I said, I got to ask, what in the world do you wear on your feet? He said, oh, they make special shoes just for races like this. The worst decision I ever made in running one of these races was to wear gym shoes. I thought they'd protect my feet and they'd be comfortable as I ran, but I got no more than like a quarter mile in and they were soaked and so caked with mud, they were the biggest thing holding me back from finishing the race. It was the worst decision I've ever made. You see, even good things that we think will help us can oftentimes become hindrances in the life of faith. So the author of Hebrews says, you need to throw off anything that hinders you and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's take a minute to explore this idea of sin. We all have a snapshot. We have an idea in our minds of what sin is. But let me give us a new definition, perhaps one that we haven't heard before. Let me suggest that sin is a shortcut. Sin is a shortcut. Sin is seeing the course ahead, recognizing its length and difficulty, and then choosing another route. Sin is seeing the course ahead, recognizing the length and difficulty, and then choosing another route. Let me illustrate. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. The scriptures tell us that they were created, you and I were created in the image of God, to be like God. And so God shares with Adam and Eve dominion over all of creation. He says, I'm going to put you in charge of everything I've made, and if you faithfully exercise the responsibility I've given to you, you will grow in likeness and become more and more like me. But up comes the serpent and suggests, you know what? That's the long way. There's an easier way to be like God. If you just eat from the tree that he's forbidden you to eat from, you'll be enlightened. Your eyes will be open and you'll be just like him. There's an easier way to get there. Eat this fruit. And so Adam and Eve bite. And immediately they realize that they've traded in the one thing they desired most for the exact opposite. Disobedience made them exactly the opposite of God. It made them unholy. It made them sinful. It made them unrighteous, unfit for the very presence of God. 
You see, when we take a shortcut, we trade the very thing we're reaching for for the exact opposite. Let me give you some examples in our lives today. God has created sex for the confines of marriage, and he said sex celebrated within a marriage produces unity and intimacy. But we want that unity and intimacy so much that the self-control required to wait for it is just too much. And so many have given in. And instead, they settle for anxiety and regret. God is our provider. And he blesses us materially and financially. And he says that he's blessed us to be a blessing. But sometimes the bills tend to pile up and the money runs out and unforeseen expenses pop up. And we begin to think, you know what, I'll just, I'll just cut back on my tithe or maybe skip a month or two of my financial commitment to the campaign until things just kind of settle out a little bit. And the financial peace, peace that we desire forfeits God's blessing altogether. After all, he did say, if you're faithful with little, you'll be entrusted with much. God has promised us peace. Pastor Jim did a great job of talking about this peace at Christmas Eve. And sometimes peace is the very last thing we find in our schools. The bullying and the backbiting and the gossip is just vicious. But God has also called us to be agents of justice and peacemakers. But the idea of putting our, our reputation on the line, putting ourselves in harm's way, standing up for and standing up with the victim is just too much to bear. And so we choose personal peace. And instead we produce a pretty hostile place that nobody speaks into. See, God has promised some great things in our lives, and if we can seem to endure and obediently follow him, we will get to those things, but if we don't obediently endure, if we take the shortcut, not only do we not get those things, but we get the exact opposite. Sin is a shortcut, and what Hebrews 12:1 calls us to do is throw off any temptation whatsoever to take the easy route, to turn back to the old way of life, to bypass the challenging course ahead, and insist on the comfortable course instead. But how do we do this? The author of Hebrews says, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, our champion. Let me talk about our champion Jesus for a minute. In verse 2, we're given this portrait of Jesus as our pioneer and perfecter. Let me read it again. I'm going to begin with the second part of verse 1 and read into verse 2. He says this, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This line right here might be the very theological climax of the entire book. If you take nothing away from the book of Hebrews, if you take nothing away from this whole series that we've been in, take this away. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The entire book leads up to this very point, this very command. Let me illustrate for you. Here's the contour and context of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is superior to the angels. In, chapters three, in chapter 3, Jesus is superior to Moses, the lawgiver. In chapters 4 through 7, Jesus is superior to the priesthood. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is superior to the old covenant. And in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus is superior to the temple and the sacrificial system. And now here in 11 and 12, Jesus is superior to the Old Testament saints and anything or anyone that we could possibly follow. Therefore, keep your eyes on Jesus. Why? The author of Hebrews says, because he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Before we get into those two terms, pioneer and perfecter, I want to talk a little bit about faith. 
Faith is something that's easy to, to overlook. The idea, the, the concept of faith is easy to bypass. So let me give us a definition, a working definition that we can use this morning. Faith is the proper response to God that connects us to him. All right? Faith is the proper response to God that connects us to him. In other words, faith is not simply what happens in our heads, what we understand, or in our hearts, what we desire and believe, but it's what happens in our lives as we respond to God in devotion and obedience. Faith is the thing that was behind the enduring faith of all of the people in chapter 11. Because they believed in their head, because they desired God in their hearts, their lives reflected an enduring faith, and they were able to endure incredible trials and follow God, connect with him right to the very end. Faith is the proper response to God that connects us to him. So what does it mean that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith? Let's begin with that term, pioneer. Jesus is our pioneer. That word is actually the Greek word archegos. We get the idea of the architect from this word, but it was bigger than that. You see, in ancient Greece, the, uh, the idea of archegos was the hero or the founder of a particular city. He or she was the one that gave this city their name and continues to preside over the city, protecting it and ruling over it. Athena was the archegos of the city of Athens. So the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our archegos. He is our founder. He is our builder. He is our ruler of this city we call faith. So let me take a minute and pick that apart. What does it mean that Jesus is the founder and the builder and the ruler of faith? First, Jesus is the founder. You see, Jesus wasn't God's plan B. He wasn't waiting in the bullpen until the time was right, until, you know, the Christmas story was about to be told. Jesus has been active from the very beginning. Why? Because he is God. This is what we learned in week one of our series. This is how the book of Hebrews opens up. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Whatever God has done, whatever God is doing, whatever God will do, he does through Jesus. Through Jesus, God made the universe, and in light of today's passage, he has laid down the path of faith, the way in which we are supposed to connect with our creator. He was there at the beginning, but he didn't just lay down the path. He just didn't found this world on faith. He went on to be its builder as well. That means he has completed the idea of faith. When sin broke our connection with God, Jesus Christ took on flesh and he became one of us. And he lived a perfectly obedient life. And that obedient life took him to the cross where he would die in my place, in your place, for the sins of the world. And because he lived a perfect life, because he became the perfect sacrifice, the scriptures say that God raised him from the dead. And right here in Hebrews 12 too, we see that God seated him therefore on the throne at the right hand of God. This is the gospel right here. This is the only way that we can reconnect with God because of the brokenness of sin. We have to believe in Jesus and what he has done, and we have to choose to respond to him by faith with our lives. But Jesus didn't just 
build the bridge that reconnects us with God. As we already learned, he's seated right now as the ruler over faith. Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, and he rules over all of creation, not just you and me. He's our king, and he's worthy to be honored and obeyed because he's good and merciful. Because he's a king who has humbled himself and identified with our weaknesses. And when we come to him, he hears us and he responds. He's our provider and our protector. He is our archegos. And we can trust him because he is actively caring for us right now. This is what it means that he is our pioneer of faith. But what does it mean that he is the perfecter of faith? This idea of perfection is used 14 times in the book of Hebrews. Pastor Clayton, I believe, already talked about this. The idea of perfection is not one of moral impurity, or moral purity, I should say. Uh, That's definitely in mind when we talk about Jesus. Jesus never sinned. But in the book of Hebrews, the author continues to say, well, God laid down this way, and then it's been perfected by Jesus. There is a better way. There is a greater way. Jesus is that greater way. See, everything in all of creation has been created by one person. Everything that's been invented has been invented by one person, been conceived of by one person, and then built upon by others, perfected by others. For instance, did you know that the very first patent filed for the cell phone was filed in 1917? I know. That's nearly 100 years ago. Let me tell you what was filed. A guy named Eric Tigerstadt out of uh, Finland filed for this patent, and here's what he patented. A pocket-sized folding telephone with a very thin carbon microphone. That is shockingly accurate, right? Don't you wish you had that patent about 1970, right? Well, it wasn't until 1973 that Motorola actually perfected the idea and produced the very first working cell phone. And since then, they've been reinvented and perfected by thousands of others, right? In fact, if you bought a cell phone Uh, For someone for Christmas, it's probably already been perfected by somebody else. You'll need to go out and get a new one shortly, right? But that's the idea behind everything in all of creation. One person builds it, one person perfects it. But that can't be said of Jesus. He is the author, he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What he laid down at the very beginning is just as true, is just as effective, is just as good and accurate today as it was back then. There is nothing to be added to it. Jesus makes this claim about himself at the very end of Revelation 22, 13. He says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There is nothing else but me. In other words, no religious system of the past, no spiritual work in the present, no future revelation will ever reconnect you with your creator and bring meaning to the events of this life. Nothing at all but Jesus Faith is Jesus, and life is all about keeping your eyes fixed on him. But what does this look like? What does it really look like to fix your eyes on Jesus? Let's go back to the passage. I know it's going to sound redundant, but we're going to read it one more time to gain a perspective on what does it mean to keep our eyes on Jesus. Once again, he writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me once again paint this picture. In the grandstands around us is the great cloud of witnesses. 
At the finish line, the place that we look, we're not called to keep our eyes on the finish line. Now, we need to keep heaven in mind, but we're not called to keep our eyes on the finish line or on the cloud of witnesses in the stands. We're called to keep our eyes on whom? On Jesus. Where is he? Now, in a very real sense, he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us and ruling over all of creation. But the author of Hebrews puts him somewhere else. He puts us on the course. He puts Jesus on the course in front of us. Not at the distant finish line, calling us forward. Not in the stands, cheering us on. But the author of Hebrews says, this Jesus is with you, and he runs this race with you. He's just ahead of you. So keep your eyes on him, because if you do, you're going to know how to navigate this race. You're going to know how to succeed. My son Elijah, I told you already, he, uh, he picked up cross-country this year. Now, i got to tell you something else about my son Elijah. He is not much of a fan of losing. Now, most of you are like, yeah, me neither. Like, I hate losing. Let me, let me redefine this. Elijah hates losing. I didn't say he hates to lose. He hates losing no matter what. For instance, he doesn't like to win because by winning, somebody else has to experience losing. So when he runs... You know, the gun goes off and the race starts. He gets out kind of to a comfortable pace and he stays right there. He doesn't pass anybody and he doesn't let anybody pass him. He just kind of hangs out right there because he doesn't like to discourage anybody. And I, and I wondered, Elijah, why in the world would you want to run cross country? You hate losing. Like, he goes, well, Dad, my friend Micah wants me to run, so I'm going to run with Micah. Let me tell you something about Micah. Micah is an amazing runner, and Micah loves to win, and he does it pretty regularly. In fact, there wasn't a race that Micah ran this year that he didn't win. He didn't finish minutes ahead of the next closest sixth grader in the race. He's an incredible runner. And the amazing thing was that when, when Micah finishes a race, Micah doesn't, you know, collapse at the finish line and just relax and enjoy winning. He doesn't cheer and jump around at the fact that he had beaten everybody else in the race. Instead, Micah grabs his water bottle, turns around and heads back out onto the course to find Elijah. And he runs alongside of him. He says, hey, keep going, man. You can do this. Keep going, Eli. Keep going, Eli. And on those particularly difficult courses, the away meets where the course is hard to follow, he makes sure that he knows the path to take and how to navigate the turns. That's the picture of Jesus in Hebrews 12. He's not waiting at the finish line, calling us in a distance. He's running this race with us. He ran it once already, and he doesn't mind running it again with you and with me. And so he's come back to run it just ahead of us so we know where to step, where to turn, how to endure, how to avoid unnecessary pain. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we meditate on his word, when we commune with him in prayer, when we consider who he is and what he's done for us, According to Hebrews, we're going to experience an enduring faith that will help us endure the trials of life. And we're going to come to three profound conclusions about our struggles, about our trials and our circumstances. Here are the conclusions that we're going to come to. Number one is this. You're on the right path, so don't lose heart. You're on the right path, so don't lose heart. When life gets difficult, we might be prone to ask a question, God, what have I done to deserve this? 
What have I done to tick you off? What have I done to make you mad? God, why are you doing this to me? We can be prone to question God's fairness or his justice or even wonder if he's there at all. But the author of Hebrews says, no, just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean that you're on the wrong path. He says these words in verses three and four. If you're struggling, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. In other words, if you think you're off track, think again. Because Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, endured opposition. He faced the enemy. There's a spiritual battle going on all around us. And we're on God's side, but there's an enemy. And if Jesus faced opposition from sinners, and you choose to follow Jesus, you're going to face the same exact thing. I got a good friend who's an attorney, and he loves going into the city on the weekends and serving in a free legal clinic down there. And he goes in pretty, pretty regularly. And on one particular occasion, he went into the city and spent all day caring for some pretty difficult people and some pretty difficult circumstances. And when he came out to his car, he found that somebody had vandalized his car, broken into it, stolen his stereo and his laptop, and left him with just thousands of dollars worth of loss and damage. I remember talking to him about it. Man, how do you... How do you not just like, get frustrated with that? There you are down in the city serving God. And like, how do you not say, well, God, what gives? Like, I'm doing my best to follow you. The least you could do is protect my car while I'm doing it. And he's like, well, Pete, you know, that's just the cost of following Jesus sometimes. I was blown away by his response. Yeah, you see, following Jesus doesn't mean we're exempt from the stuff of life. But it does give us a perspective of that stuff. And it helps us to remember, if I'm following Jesus, life is going to be filled with some problems. There's going to be pain. And, and God didn't allow Jesus to bypass any of it, so why should I be entitled to bypass any of it? If you're struggling right now, if you're facing some kind of trial, don't lose heart. It doesn't mean you're off track. It doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. It means you're on the right path, so don't lose heart. Remember Jesus' words here in Matthew 16. He said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So fix your eyes on Jesus. You're going to struggle, but take heart. You're on the right path. The second conclusion we're going to come to is this. You are loved. So endure hardship as discipline. You are loved. So endure hardship as as discipline. When life hits the fan, and it will, we can often be tempted to wonder, does God even care about me? We can be tempted to question God's goodness and his love. But the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. He goes on to remind us that discipline is a function of the fact that we're children of God, that God is our father, and a good father disciplines his children. Here's what we read in verses 7 and 8. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. You see, the perfect discipline that produced perfection in Jesus, God's only begotten son, is the exact same perfecting discipline that God is applying to you and me and all who choose to follow Jesus as Savior. We can be sure of that. 
Let me give you an illustration. Many of you know that my wife and I do foster care and adoption, and, and our home is filled with lots and lots of hurting kids all the time. And it's not uncommon that we take in a teenager, and within a, a, a short time, they say something like, it's not fair, or you're picking on me, or you treat Caleb and Elijah because they're your biological kids. You treat them better than the, you treat the rest of us. It's just not fair. And it usually pops up somewhere around chores or some kind of discipline or forcing them to do their homework or clean their room or brush their teeth. You know, simple matters of discipline. But they immediately look at it and they say, you're treating me differently. It's not fair. And every single time I look at them and I say, you know what? That's not the case. And something you don't realize is this, that for the past 11 and 13 years, Caleb and Elijah have been enduring my discipline. They've been being trained by me to do their homework when they come home from school and clean their room on the weekends and and brush their teeth and comb their hair and be respectful and courteous, to be kind, to follow Christ, to be gentle and compassionate. You see, they've been following my discipline for years. And they've just learned. They've been shaped by it. So now I don't have to remind them. Now I don't have to pick on them. But you got to understand that I love you just like I love them. So I'm going to put you through that same thing because I want you to be responsible I want you to be respectful. I want you to be successful. I want you to be godly. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I do, and I'm treating you just like I would my own kids. I love the way that this one author puts it in a commentary I read this week. He says this, It may come as a shock to many Christians to discover that there lies ahead of them a life in which God, precisely because he's treating us as sons and daughters, will refuse to spoil us or ignore us will refuse to let us get away, with, get away forever with rebellion or folly, with sin or stupidity. I love that. God, because he loves us, won't let us get away with any of that shenanigans. But he's all about producing in us a holiness and a righteousness and a Christ-likeness that will ensure that we can finish this race. That's God's desire for every one of us. But that's not to deny that life is painful or to suggest that pain is good. There's much of life that we could rightfully call evil. But wherever it comes from, the hardship and the discipline, wherever it comes from, the author of Hebrews calls us to have an enduring faith that trusts that the God of the universe loves us and cares for us. And he's using these experiences and events to shape us and to create that Christ-likeness in our lives. To prepare us for his presence. I remember when my dad was sick with cancer and he was on his deathbed and I was coming home from Cincinnati regularly to visit him and to be with him. And I remember when the the cancer had grown and and taken over so much of his body that he would just sit on the side of his bed in, in agonizing pain and just pray, Jesus, hold me. Jesus, hold me. Jesus, hold me. And he would pray that prayer again and again and again. And I remember as he prayed that prayer, I was praying, God, why? Why would you allow this? He's followed you his whole life. He's been faithful. Why would you allow him to suffer like this? God, why not just take him now? Or better yet, why not do a miracle and heal him? Imagine how many people would come to believe in you if you just did this miracle. Jesus, why are you doing this? My dad's prayer echoed in my head, Jesus, hold me. Jesus, hold me. Jesus, hold me. It wasn't until probably months later that I was reflecting on my dad's life and reflecting on his faith and reflecting on his death that I realized that in that moment, my dad was being prepared to enter the very presence of God. 
And how much greater to enter his presence with that kind of confidence and longing than to enter the presence of God with a shaking fist that says, why God, why? But not only was God shaping my dad, perfecting my dad's faith, but he was perfecting my faith. As I remember back about my dad's life, the things that remind me most, the things that stand out most about my dad's life is his faith and the way that he endured trials all the time. When I watched him endure that one last trial, I realized that God was preparing in me a faith that I'd need to endure all sorts of things. Not just as a, as a pastor, as a person, as a man, as a father, as a husband. See, God's got a purpose behind the suffering he allows in our lives. God had a purpose behind the suffering of Christ. And he wasn't willing to let him bypass it. Though in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. The father said, no. No, this is the perfecting suffering that needs to be accomplished in order to bring salvation to everyone. And so if God the Father can say to God the Son, no, I'm not taking this suffering away, then I can accept that too. I watched my dad accept it, and I hope that I can accept that throughout my life. The last conclusion that we're going to come to is this. You are not alone. So encourage and strengthen one another along the way. You are not alone, so strengthen and encourage one another along the way. You see, when trials and struggles come up, we're tempted to wonder if we're the only one suffering. Nobody else goes through this kind of stuff. Nobody else's marriage is like this. Nobody else's children act this way. Nobody else has to endure this type of budget, this type of of sickness, this type of disease, this type of neighborhood, this type of work environment. I'm all alone. Nobody identifies with me. But as we turn to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12, we read this. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. You see, here in this final brushstroke that the author of Hebrews provides, we learn something really important. That we run this race not alone, but surrounded by fellow runners people who are lame and disabled, people for whom life is a struggle, people for whom brokenness and sin has taken its toll, and who just like you and me have a hard time imagining enduring faith to get us to the finish line. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet because you don't run alone. There's people around you watching you. And Don't forget the people around you. If we choose to run this race with perseverance, if we choose an enduring faith, and we choose to gather together on a regular basis as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we choose to run this race in community, we'll get to the finish line. So don't forget, you don't run this alone. You're not the only one struggling. Our struggles are common. But the pioneer and perfecter of our faith is good, and he's running with us. And so let me close with a snapshot of a different kind of race. How many of you have ever watched a Special Olympics race? One of the things I love about the Special Olympics and watching those races is this, that those runners do not compete against one another. Instead, as they're running the race, they run with joy. They run with a disability. They run with a a struggle but they run with joy. And when a fellow runner slows down, they slow down too and they run with them. 
And when a fellow runner trips and falls, they stop and they help him up. And they run together to the end of the race and the celebration continues until the last runner crosses the finish line. And no one leaves the stands until everybody's crossed the finish line. That's the picture that Hebrews is painting here. This is why it's so important that we gather together every single weekend as a body of Christ, as the church, to encourage one another and to strengthen one another and to pray for one another. In fact, let me close with one scripture passage from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The way that we're going to get to the end of this race called life is by running together. Is by throwing off all the sin that trips us up and hinders us. By choosing the path ahead and not settling for the shortcut. And most importantly, by fixing our eyes on Jesus every single day. Watching him as our example. Turning to him as our provider, as our protector, as our champion. Because that same Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, is perfecting you and me as we run this race. In a minute, we're going to close in prayer, and, and afterwards, we're going to close with a, a song, and our ushers are going to come forward and collect our offering and our tithes. If you've been carrying a burden in this race, I want to encourage you to lay that down today. I want to encourage you to come to the front and the kneelers sometime as we close the service and just take some time in prayer. If you want to pray with somebody, there's somebody at each one of our campuses that'd be more than willing to pray with you. And as we sing this last song, Cornerstone, I want you to think about what it means for you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you are our pioneer and perfecter of faith. We're so grateful that you go out before us, that you run this race with, race with us, that you haven't abandoned us. We're so grateful for the example that you give us, but we're grateful for the instruction that you give us along the way. The fact that we can turn to you and know that you hear our prayers and that you help us in our time of need. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the enduring faith required to follow you for a lifetime, to endure the trials of this life. Give us the courage to throw off sin and anything that stands in the way of us pursuing you. Jesus, unite us as brothers and sisters and help us to run this race together and to encourage one another all the more as we see the finish line approaching. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the courage to keep our eyes on you and to finish this race you set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.